this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a podcast from Book Riot. We talk about things related <laughs> to books, sometimes reading, because they're not always related, but mostly books and book adjacent types of things. Welcome to the it's Book like Adjacent purred. Podcast. Thank you. It's like Purd Happily giving a <laughs> podcast welcome. This is a podcast that talks about books. That also is a podcast about books. <laughs> this is episode 355. Today is Thursday, February 20th, 2020. I'm Jeff. She's Rebecca. The lightest news week we've had in some time. It's in mid-February. A like the new year stuff is over. The spring books haven't... We're going to get a real wave in March of a lot of interesting books. Theorize um, our salespeople have, have said that they have heard anecdotally, but also in terms of just the amount of advertising being booked in March, they think people are dodging October, November to, to release books um, mm. for the comet of distraction and anxiety and portent that is the 2020 presidential election. Things being moved up, things being moved back. But historically, October and November for us is a very busy time for advertising, for news, and every everything going on. For actually most industries, I think this follows the big one, anticipation of the holidays. But um, this year is going to be strange in a lot of ways, and this is just one of them that affects us. Yeah, I have at least one writer friend whose publication date has been changed specifically to the phrase, we're putting it out after the election. Mm -hmm. It's a real thing. Yeah, and it's one of those, it's such an unusual event, and I don't know if they have historical data as publisher, the day being publishers about book sales around elections. I'm sure some are more interesting than others. This is probably... I don't even want to talk about it, but it seems to me more, quote unquote, interesting than the last one because we've had four years of this experience and people know what it's about and um, <laughs> rightly or you know, either pro or con uh, more um, anchored into their hopes of what the next four years will look like. But certainly a, a quieter week this week, but we got some stuff to talk about as we always do. But first, let's uh, take a break for a sponsor. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled Alasmael. In this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the hammams, secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. 
Find out more about Salamlik by Khaled Alasmail, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at IndiePubs.com slash products slash Salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khaled Alasmail for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half-Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow in the Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half-Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout. And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode. Follow-up um, for us. You mentioned on the last show mm. when we were talking about The Good Place and how you wish there were a Michael Schur podcast about philosophy. Well, it's not about philosophy, but Michael wrote in um, to say Mike Shore does have a podcast with the writer Joe Poznanski, and they talk about all sorts of stuff. And you can sort of cool. go back and scroll, browse by subject to see if there's anything there that um, particularly strikes you. Poznanski, weirdly, not weirdly, just I happen to have read him a long time, was a sports writer for the Kansas City Star for a long time when I cared about Kansas City sports, especially, um, and is a good writer and an interesting guy and has written books. Um, I don't know how they got hooked up. I have no idea. I wouldn't guess them necessarily to be uh, necessarily simpatico, but who knows? Um, maybe Shure read Poznanski uh, as when he became more of a national sports writer. Sure, I know as a sports fan. Um, so there you go. There's a recommendation. Everyone, every, a podcast Great. for you, a podcast for you, a podcast for you. Everyone uh, gets a podcast <laughs> I will there. look forward to that. Um, Thank you, Michael. I guess, well, I, I, well since there's not a real headline, we're going to talk about the I will talk about Charles Portis passing away here in a minute. But while we're on the idea of connecting podcasts with books, story um, that Flatiron is announcing a new nonfiction imprint, and it, they're partnering up with iHeartMedia, which used to be called iHeartRadio before people realized that radio is dying, and now it's iHeartMedia because they're <laughs> in podcasts. And the debut, the debut um, book is going to be Stuff You Should Know. Who, oh, who are the hosts of Stuff You Should Know, which is one of the, I think, 10 or 15 most popular podcasts out there. And it makes sense that you get publishers, acquisitions, editors, publicists, people who are expert in the podcast universe to try to work on books that come out of podcasts. I was asking uh, in the office the other day, Sharif and Vanessa, if they know of a great book. What, what's the best book published by someone who's become well-known because they have a podcast. And we were having a hard time coming up with one. I know people like Welcome mm. to Night Vale, that podcast, and that yeah. book did pretty well, and there was a sequel. But outside of that, I had a hard time thinking of one. Does one jump I, to mind for you, Rebecca? 
I think Stay Sexy, Don't Get Murdered by the ah. um, women who did host that do my well? favorite murder. Is it, a, is it good and did, do, think, do well? B, did it do well? I haven't seen the book. No. I've, um, the only, actually, I mean, like, this is my idiosyncratic use case, but my only experience with the podcast is that I went to a live show with a friend right. who loves them and her partner couldn't go with her that night, um, which was a really fun way to be exposed to the show for the first time and see the incredible community um, that has built up around it. I think the book did relatively well. I mean, like, not, you know, super bestseller well, but I saw a good amount of buzz about it beforehand. Um, We just were looking on our company Slack at a list of the most popular shows according to Listener Recall, which is if you ask people about their favorite podcasts, and like, they just have to remember off the top of their head what Mm -hmm. they like. My favorite murder is, I think, in the third or fourth spot. Which is wild for an independent show. Yeah, that's wild. It is. Um, So I think that's done pretty well. Gretchen Rubin was famous before she had the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. The Happiness Project came out before the podcast. Um, Yeah, I can't think of anything else. And honestly, I don't know how the Night Vale books did. I would assume that just by virtue of the size of the audience of that show and the fact that there have been multiple ones, they did all right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's a subset of celebrity publishing, right? I mean, that's what this is. Yeah, and... The a couple of the guys from Pod Save America who were Obama staffers have had memoirs out and they refer to that work sometimes in those memoirs. But the books, the books, I guess, probably got a bump from people's familiarity with their names, but those books aren't about that podcast, though. I think there might be a Pod Save America book coming out later this year. I wouldn't. I mean, if they're if they're not, they should. Whatever they have to print, people. Will, I mean, the, yeah. the, the the feeding frenzy of activity around the election, and especially that podcast. There's a thing about enthusiasm around a podcast. Like you feel like you know the host. Um, listening to them every week is its own kind of experience. As people listening to this probably know, have that relationship with this show, and, and I have it with others. I don't know how that translates into sales. Like, what percentage of your audience is going to go out and buy a book? that you or your you had ghostwritten or whatever. And is that the end of the ripples? Like, does, is there any knock-on effects? Am I going to read a book by someone who's known for a podcast that I've never listened to? It seems wildly unlikely. Um, mm. So I don't know if there's a sort of word-of-mouth ceiling on these sorts of things. I guess if they're a good writer, it's going to be a good book. And maybe the podcast base gives them some sort of uh, terminal velocity that they need to get to, to to break out of whatever their audience might be. I, I don't know if this is a fad. I don't know if this is going to be a part of the publishing firmament. Like there are, self, is it like self-help guru type people that also publish books and podcasters of a certain size are going to also have the ability to activate a certain percentage of their audience in the form of buying a fourteen ninety nine paperback? I, I don't know. Um, if anyone out there has read a very good book that someone who hasn't listened to the podcast would still find interesting, I'd sure like to know about it. Uh, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Anything else about this story, Rebecca, that seems interesting to you? Uh, I think when we were chatting about it sort of backstage at the on the Book Riot mm. Slack, someone was like, but why partner with iHeartMedia? And I, I think it's an interesting question if you're outside the world of books and oh. reading. Like, why does this need to be a separate imprint? Why wouldn't they just sign the hosts of the show? But I'm like, I'm assuming it has to do with iHeartMedia's ownership yeah. or at least part ownership of the content and related IP mm-hmm. there. That doesn't mean that Flatiron couldn't have just like made a deal that cuts iHeartMedia in. But I'm sure if you're iHeartMedia, you want to be able to be like, here is the iHeartMedia literary imprint. Um, so 
we know most readers don't care about imprints. Actually, most readers don't even know what imprints are. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're listening to this show and you're you're the kind of person who will tell your friends about an imprint, you're in the right place, but also you are still a rare bird. And if, <laughs> and if someone does readers. know your imprint these days, it's for not a reason you want them to know your imprint. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. That's another thing that's not quite shaken out in a way that I think this is what we do and we don't even know what the industry standard is here. So here's the press release. I'll link to it in the show notes where you can find all the links we talk about. But Stuff You Should Know, their their debut flagship title. The podcast is hosted by Josh Clark and Chuck Bryant and the languages are hosts of the iHeart Podcast Network's award-winning and hugely successful podcast Stuff You Should Know. Who owns that podcast is a question that is not obvious here. It's The, mm-hmm. the possessive is iHeart Podcast Network. So are Josh Clark and Chuck Bryant the podcast of like lead actors in a TV show? Like, what what is the mental model of how to understand? Are they Sam Waterston in Law and Order, or are they LeBron James, right? Who's sort of a celebrity yeah. in their own right and a free agent and could move? It doesn't matter what team they go to; he's still going to be LeBron James. This is something I don't really have much experience with, and I'd love to know over the course of time. Big, hugely successful podcasts that lose a host that people have come to know, like what percentage of the audience they lose with them? Like recently I saw um, Robert Krolowicz is retiring from Radiolab, right? Um, Jad mm. Rod will still be around. But like what percentage of the Radiolab listenership is going to leave, be less excited, be less enthusiatic when it's Jad Obermrod and replacement podcast person X? Um, I think that's one, uh, let me say this. I know this is one thing that companies that have large podcasts or have aspirations to be large podcasts worry about is, are they there for the podcast or for, are they there for the person? Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer to that. I think that's going to be something that becomes very interesting over time. Is it going to have a movie star kind of mode where you're going to watch Brad Pitt be in things? Or is it more of a, I'm going to watch the Avengers and whoever's in the Avengers is what I'm watching, but I, I, I don't know. And maybe it's a little bit of column A and column B, but we're still so in the early stages. We're in the early stages of the middle stages of podcast being a mature <laughs> platform. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think so, because I think the next stage is rather than these podcast platforms having book imprints, it's like the host of a specific show. Like yeah. if you know, one of the publishers gives the Pod Save America guys an imprint and they start curating and publishing contemporary political and social stuff. Um, That would be interesting to see. Or like Gretchen Rubin getting an imprint to do Mm -hmm. self-help, be a happier person, you know, clean up your house kinds of things. Yeah, and and I guess the ultimate question you're sort of pointing to is where's the juice? Who has the juice in the relationship? Yeah, and, right, and does the juice even matter? Yeah, like, we, I think we talked about know. this some when we were circling around Bourdain having an imprint and like celebrity imprints at publishing houses. It's like, it's, an, it's a cool thing that a celebrity gets to do to curate titles and help be part of selecting books that get published or like shepherd voices that they care about into the publication process. But, like, whether it actually matters to most people that that book was like part of the Bourdain imprint or part of Sarah Jessica Parker's imprint, I think is a question that remains to be answered, or maybe the fact that it's been open for so long is an indicator that the answer is no, it doesn't really I think matter. you're right. And, and, and one indicative, um, I don't know, branding hack has been the, are you sure you know who wrote the book you're reading move of the James Patterson's, mm-hmm. the Rick Reardon? Uh, Rick Reardon's not as bad, but it's like Rick Reardon presents Arusha on the End of Time. 
or I, mm-hmm. this is the book that my son reads. I don't. It's I don't know if it's actually one of those Rick Riordan presents, but it could be. Like, what do people are people? How many units, if any, are people buying because they like? Oh, Rick Riordan recommends this, or even worse, better, whatever, more confusingly, wait, Rick Reardon wrote this with this other purpose? I, just being yeah. confused about where the juice, the, the, the vector of the juice in these particular can be. <laughs> Sometimes you th- say things just so that they become the show title. I'm sorry, this is, I, I have so few joys in, in life when it comes to being silly that I have to take them when they're available to me. But the vector. I, I just don't know exactly how this stuff is going to shake out, and maybe this imprint is the, the way that... Um, People find out because the Bourdains, yeah, they're the set. What, what's the great success story in the history of celebrity imprints? Is there one? Do we have a great success story? I'm not counting James Patterson. That dude's a writer. I, yeah, he's not a celebrity imprint. I don't think so. Uh, a lot of questions we don't know today. When there's not as much news, we get to ponder in, uh, indefinitely <laughs> in, in, in myriad directions about whatever strikes us. And podcasts and books, not surprisingly, is a fraught topic uh, for us, I guess. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, if that'd be another one I'd like to know. Like, for those, I know people out there that are in publishing, um, listen, is there a, a stealth example or even a non-stealth example that I can't think of where the celebrity imprint actually mattered? And we've always wondered, like, if Oprah actually had an imprint, maybe these days if it's Reese Witherspoon mm-hmm. actually had an imprint. But like, didn't Lena Dunham? Wait, doesn't Oprah have an imprint? No, she's part doesn't of Flatiron. Doesn't Oprah have an imprint at Flatiron? No, I, yeah, but it's like for books by Oprah. I don't think there's like an Oprah Presents. Uh, okay. Uh, Oprah doesn't present Rick Reardon presenting um, someone else. We don't get any of those <laughs> sorts of stuff. Oh, That's God. like the Academy Awards where you have, present, you have, you have um, presenters to present the presenters that are then going to present the award. I've never understood that. This is it's this too many things. There's too many layers here. Yeah, I'm confused. That's right. So I'm not sure. It, it's it makes sense that these this is an area of exploration because it's a new center of attention and a particular kind of focused attention that would lend itself you would think to repeat public you know these are brands. Mm-hmm. These are brands people have relationships with. Um, they might be especially interested in listening to an audiobook for example. Uh, but iHeartMedia's middleman IP owner situation is, is fascinating to see there. Uh, let's do another break. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story. So in Just Some Stupid Love Story by Caitlin Doyle, Molly and Seth were best friends turned lovers until Molly ghosted Seth on the eve of their high school graduation, which is very trifling, I might add. 
So now they've reunited again at their high school reunion 15 years later, and they make a bet. Whoever can predict the fate of five couples before the next reunion must declare that the other is right about true love. But what is the catch, you might ask? Well, the catch is that the fifth couple is them. Dun, dun, dun. So this is a callback to the best 90s and early 2000s rom-coms. If you like When Harry Met Sally or How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, this will be right up your alley. This is also perfect for fans of romance readers of Emily Henry, Catherine Center and others like that. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story, for sponsoring this episode. Sad news this week. Um, Charles Portis, um, a the the New York Times headline is elusive author of True Grit. I didn't know he was elusive. I thought he's maybe not as well read mm. as maybe people like me who are Char- Charles Portis fans think he should have been well read um liberty uh is a huge charles porter fan maybe even bigger than i in fact i I wouldn't be surprised she's a bigger fan of everything than i am um (laughs) best known i think for writing the novel true grit of which there have been two movies made both both of them pretty good actually i recommend both Mm -hmm. true grit movies my favorite of his is um dog of the south comic kind of picaresque novel uh dry funny um I don't even know what to say about it. It largely happens in the South and Texas. Um, kind of a Barry Hannah light, not quite as like grotesque as Barry Hannah or dark or strange, but still spiky and pointed. Um, it's sad. It's at the end of an era, the kind of person I was trying to think of someone like Charles Portis now, um, but 86 years old. Uh, the publicity shy of Mr. Portis earned a modest but devoted readership and accolades as America's least known great writer. Would you like to be the least known great writer or the best known <laughs> terrible writer? Ooh, well, you're richer if you're the best I know, known terrible I know, writer. I know, I know, I know, but would you still be, but you're a great writer and you're less known, so you're probably, mm, you're making, you're making I- rent. But I think I would. Are we? Are, is this hypothetical? Or are we? No, really I actually have a thing question? to give you that will make you the least known great writer or the the worst. <laughs> it's not hypothetical. You have to choose now. Take these magic yes. beans. Um, I would like to be the least known great, and writer. that's what makes the us hipster doofuses, right? We both were well, going to take this. Anonymity, man, oh, it is a valuable thing. Uh, I want to be able to just like live my life. And not be approached by right. people. I do not think that I would enjoy being famous. So if you're, this is going to get us into trouble. If you're the best known <laughs> bad writer, what kind? Uh-huh. Let's not. We don't need to to award the crown. But who are we talking about there? The best known bad writer. Because, no surprise to anyone listening. We're not the biggest Delia Owens fans in the world, but Delia Owens doesn't have like paparazzi problems. That's not what we're talking about here. Right. Do people even know her name? That's yeah, the, the where the crawdads sing. Do people even know that? Yeah, I think it would have to be I mean, I think it would have to be like somebody in the E.L. James over uh, Or how about Bill O'Reilly? People he those yeah. books sell a ton. And I'm not a fan, I guess I'll say. I'll put it that way. If you like those, you know, congratulations. But um, 
that's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> that's not what I'm looking for. By yeah, I was. I think he wouldn't have occurred to me because he wasn't a writer. First. Right, 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 right. Not not primarily a writer. You know. And like, I will before you send me your angry emails about Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, I am on the record thinking it is the most important book of the previous decade, yeah. and. I don't hate what E.L. James did for culture, but I don't really think you can argue with the statement. On a line per line good. basis, it's a tough, <laughs> it's a tough hang. It's not a great, not a great writing yeah. experience. Um, but she doesn't even have like E.L. James out in the world problems, does she? Like she's at a restaurant and people are like snapping E.L. James I selfies. I honestly yeah. don't know. Like there are like four writers. I, I think, There's like four writers. Yeah, I think writer famous is a pretty good way to be famous because most of the time you're not recognized. What's that list? What's um, the list of like on the street? some meaningful percentage of people walking by and might have a shit. It's like Stephen King and JK. Is there anybody else? I think so. Yeah, Stephen King, JK Rowling. Mm. Everyone else is like Probably, famous for a different reason. Yeah, I don't Yeah, I don't even think that somebody who's a super bestseller like Nora Roberts would be. Just like replacement lawyer guy. I mean, I don't... Right. Mm. Yeah, no, I think J-Pat John Grisham people, could like I mean, walk... J-Pat people don't know. Yeah, they could. they could walk through an airport with a baseball hat on and not be stopped someone um, could mistake me and a suede blazer and pleated khakis for john grisham and that's a bad sign that's a hundred percent yeah a yeah. writer famous i think is a pretty good if you like anonymity it's a pretty good way to be famous. yeah right podcast host famous is probably right up there <laughs> right? yeah no yeah right really i mean if that's our like. if we have a shot at fame jeff that's how it's happening and i'm i'm down i don't yeah, want right. i don't want to be recognized <laughs> Yeah, so at least known great writer, I guess they're really talking about people that you wouldn't recognize, but wouldn't recognize the name, which is mm. an even weirder circle. Somehow. Or at least known, maybe even as like underread and underappreciated. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. I think Portis and like True Grit's a big book. <laughs> um, yeah, I was gonna. Say, I was thinking about that because like True Grit's been made into two giant movies, one by the Coen Brothers and the other one starring John Wayne. Like, there's got to be underknown great writers that that are less well known like anyway this we got into a weird academic or not even academic <laughs> college bull session kind of a question uh sad to see charles porter's go if you like there's there's a certain spiritual affinity with dog in the south of something like where do you go bernadette is what i was trying to think of as more of a mm. commercial type thing of a there's sort of a it's not frantic not even manic but a a buoyant darkness, um, I would say, in both of them that, I don't know, if you're looking for Southern Gothic cr- cr- uh, crossed with Where Do You Go, Bernadette, Dog of the South, and you've seen the movie True Grit, you've seen the the poppiest version of what he does. Like, it can be dark, but it all also can be sort of Butch and Cassidy in its, in, by turn. Um, a really funny writer, too. I think that's something we forget about, tends to get underappreciated over time. The, one of the great comic writers of dark humor, um, Charles Portis, uh, fairly well. Where would you recommend a person start with Charles Portis? If like me, I mean, I think Liberty did a reading pathways for this that we're rerunning she, on the did site, you look but at I haven't it? seen it yet. It? No, I haven't seen it yet. Um, it's in Start Here, the book we did years ago, but I don't remember. So I'm asking you. <laughs> My first was Dog of the South, and I like both movies of True Grit so well. They're kind of combobulated or discombobulated. Combobulated is weird that that's the word that means ordered correctly. Um, Mm. They're mixed up in my mind with my affinity for the movies, so I have a hard time 
saying that it's better than Dog of the South. Dog of the South is good. If you don't like Dog of the South, you can stop, I think. Um, it's not very long. Mm. It's easy to read. Um, but you, you'll you get a sense. And if you like that, that's a pretty good one. And I think for the Portis heads, that's the one people pick, I think. Maybe just because okay. they're trying to be hipsters and not picking True Grit like I'm doing right now. Um, <laughs> well. That's another thing. We'll put the, I'll, put, I'll find the pathway Lib did to um, Portis. And, and it, it made us think that a book nerd movie club of True Grit um, might be fun to do in the future. All right. Where do you want to go next of our three agenda items? Yeah. Well, since we're talking about recognizable yeah. authors, let's go to interesting news that broke this morning that our boy D. Brizzle is, Dan Brown, for those of you who are new mm-hmm. here, uh, is publishing his debut picture book. It's called Wild Symphony, and it'll be coming out in September with Random House Children's Books. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is accompanied by Dan Brown's first official music release. Since his writing career began, it's a children's classical music album that enhances the read aloud into a multi-sensory experience. There's a first printing of 150,000 copies. It is set to publish in 27 countries and counting. Uh, The cover looks cute. It has a bunch of wild animals playing instruments. There's an elephant with a trumpet. A little bug is playing the harp. Uh, this looks very sweet. And, you know, it, this is a children's picture book that has a, some music attached to it. I don't think we would be talking about it on the show other no. than Dan Brown. <laughs> uh, listen, I like Dan Brown. I'm on the record. I couldn't be less interested in this. And I've got kids. And I like music. Right. You're the target audience. I, I just don't know that. The, speaking of the vector of the juices, anyone's like, "Oh, Dan Brown, a children's book." I'm picking that up right now. I, I just, it doesn't feel like transportable from the yeah. Langdons of the world to picture book thing. I mean, 150,000 is not a giant thing for picture books. They tend to sell. Mm-hmm. It does seem to be the most in the world of books, the most um, carpet baggery genre. No, the totally. children's book, like, just we'll just try one and. We'll get an illustrator and maybe an editor to help you write it. And a good children's book is way harder than it seems, but also you can put a famous name on it and try to sell it. And I don't know, again, another great question. What's the best-selling celebrity children's book? Like, what's the best one and one actually sold? I guess mm-hmm. the B.J. Novak sells like crazy, and that's a super fun read, um, the book with no pictures, um, a real achievement in the world of children's books. But people weren't buying that because it's B.J. Novak, I don't think, to start with. I think yeah, he had a good no, idea I don't, maybe had a leg up I there. I don't think so. Yeah, Snooze Fest yeah. 2000 uh, yeah. for, for me. The best part of this press release is the very last sentence that says, Dan Brown is currently working on a tantalizing new Robert Langdon thriller. That's redundant. Which, you, you don't have to add tantalizing. They said Robert Langdon thriller. I, that is tantalizing I know. by nature. Well, and I the question I was going to ask you is, what other adjectives do you think were in the running oh. before they landed on tantalizing? Tantalizing, I have to say, is not what I would have picked for Dan <laughs> Me Brown. Neither. It's a little... This is going to be gross. Uh, <laughs> sensual? I was going to say it's a little too sexy yeah, for Dan Brown. Right. Mm-hmm. I would say it is... <laughs> Now that I've heard you say sensual, though, I'm going to need some time yeah, to sorry. recover. Great. We're going to end the show here. Thank you very much. Be sure to email your um, podcast host for, with complaints. Uh, I don't know. Exciting's fine. Exciting's fine. 
It's it's, it's or just new Robert. It's not Langdon as gross Taylor. as tantalizing. Tantalizing is forbidden. You know, it's tantalous, right? That's bad. Tantalus did bad things. That's why we have the word tantalus. Uh, go look it up. You can Wikipedia tantalus. You're not going to like it. <laughs> and you don't want. You can Wikipedia you you that. You get your own podcast, and you can Wikipedia that if you have problems. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I don't not. I don't like this. I mean, sure, fine, whatever. Care orchestra sure. is fine. You know, yeah. I know he was a musician before, um, mm-hmm. being. Dan Brown, I'm sure he still hammers away at a ukulele or something, but uh, that's not what I want. Not what I want from Dan Brown. Not looking forward to it. What? Here's the go. Yeah. Since we're vamping and crazy today, sure... what's the Dan okay. Brown? What's the Dan Brown topic you want? We've done AI. Uh, I think we've plumbed the catacombs mm. of the Catholic Church well enough. I don't think we have to go back to that particular uh, vestibule. What, what? Where do you want to go with with Dan Brown? We've done DNA. We've done a little AI. What uncharted depths? Right, we've done origins of the universe. It's tough. It's tough to come back he's, from there. It is. I mean, he he's so good at like the conspiracy theory yeah. kinds of things that I mean, he does history. So I think like Dan Brown is mostly going to stick mm-hmm. in that realm. But in some alternate universe where I really get to like generate a Dan Brown book, I want one I think about like alt-right conspiracies and the internet okay hmm. but that's not robert langdon's I wheelhouse that, i think it might need to be that like grenade that's very loose as you say that <laughs> yeah 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 i don't think that that's i don't think it's actually a good idea for this version of dan brown or the version of robert langdon that we know but that could be interesting i don't that's a great question i've got an answer i just came up with you want to hear it while you think? okay i do i super want the book hear that it. i like that was turned into a moribund movie called monuments men about um oh yeah Ar- the, the art, art people stuff? trying to save art in the as the nazis were sweeping through europe i think a world war ii historical thing about like the mona lisa and nazis that's that's got dan brown written all over it somewhere in there it's about mm-hmm. langdon's grandfather who was a uh paratrooper or something like this i don't know langdon can time yeah. tra- oh time travel <gasps> time t- yes time traveling robert langdon <laughs> sold Hello, Robert hello, Langdon, Mr. Da Vinci. My name is Robert Langdon. I'm a symbologist. <laughs> these are my these. Are, this is my Mickey Mouse watch. Oh man, I was reading something recently that used the word symbology in a non-ironic context, and I was like, "What hath Dan Brown?" I almost wrought? texted you from the bookstore this other day. There's this place in Portland called Paxton Gate, which is largely like a gussied up taxidermy store. Weirdly, the kids like to go in there and look at stuff. But there mm-hmm. was this giant like. It was called, I think, just the Book of Symbols with like some weird sort of like pagan looking thing on the cover. And the, the, the store had like spotlit it on this table. Mm. And I felt like, do I need to go undergo some sort of ritual to touch this thing? I was like, oh, it's, this, is, this, is like, this is like Robert Langdon. This is what Robert Actually, Langdon Actually, that, write. yeah, that just rang my bells. Maybe like something with the tarot because there's oh, so much. Oh, I like that. Like the, yeah, all the images on tarot cards are supposed to like sort of illicit or like tap into archetypal thinking and you know help you unearth unconscious stuff like if you don't buy into tarot cards as a source of predicting the future which, which i let's, don't let's let's make <laughs> not just comment on that uh but if you uh, i know a lot of people who use them like as journal prompts or as ways sources like as a way to reflect on something of like pull a random card here is what the thing on this card symbolizes use this as a jumping off point for your own personal whatevers but like there's a lot of interesting historical context i think to the images on those cards and how those 
was like specific things that are on the cards came to be chosen for mm. them. And then like interesting takeoffs on the tarot, plus like it's mysterious and occulty and maybe it's magic. Mm. Like, yeah, I think Robert Langdon and the tarot, that could be interesting. Okay, let's do another sponsor break. Then we'll talk about some, you know, things that aren't just us fantasizing. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Random House, Publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher. A story of first love that will break your heart. Wild Ground is a bittersweet novel that follows two teenagers whose all-consuming relationship is tested by the forces of class, prejudice, and addiction in a small English town. From the beginning, it has always been Neef and her beautiful, troubled mother, Chrissy. When they move to a small town to follow Chrissy's older boyfriend, it's a chance to start over. And on the first day in their new home, she meets Danny and the two form a friendship that gives way to the slow burn of romance as they grow up desperate to escape the confines of their world and the forces that hold their families hostage, like substance abuse, poverty, and racism. Now, this is perfect for fans of things like normal people, euphoria, and sex education. It centers working class women in small town England. It's steeped in the dialect and lyricism of Northern England. So make sure to check out Wild Ground by Emily Usher. And thanks again to Random House, publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for new talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Um, this is a weird story. Um, the most commonly stolen book at the San Francisco Public Library. We get stories uh, often about most stolen books, and they tend to be, what was it, Kurt Vonnegut, remember one? Like the most stolen book at bookstores is like Catch yeah. Two. Uh, Slaughterhouse Five, Catch One Two, Numbers. During my like Barnes and Noble bookseller days, it was the Bible. Oh, the Bible. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that, that's a mm -hmm. common one. Hunter S. Thompson, sort of the kind of thing. Not to cast aspersions, but that a twenty-two-year-old dude would want to read tend to get stolen. Not to you know, that's something. Mm -hmm. But this is um, a book called "Liberalism Is a Mental Disorder" by Michael Savage that gets huh. stolen a lot. And it's not clear why. Um, one author that the head of collection, this is a quote that a library spokesman, Kate Patterson, wrote. It's a link in the show notes. Has to check regularly and purchase new copies of our books is by Michael Savage. We check once a year to see if all the copies are gone in reorder. We have moved to ebook <laughs> for most of them so that we can ensure copies are around. Never thought about that as advantage of ebooks. That's tough to five-finger discount. The main title that appears quickly disappears quickly is liberalism is a mental disorder. Don't know why. Doesn't seem to be a, doesn't seem to have a um, 
I don't know, a, a pattern among other bookstores, even in, you know, liberal bastions of which San Francisco is uh, probably the bastionist. Um, they don't have a theory about why. Uh, Weird. It's a right, as, as you can, right wing is maybe strong. I don't know. But it's certainly a right, a po- politics of the right is what it's about. People buying it and throwing it away, kind of a civil disobedience sort of thing. Maybe there's some cohort of people that actually wants them. I don't know. It's very strange. I wonder if it's liberal people removing it from the library because they don't want it to be read. Mm. Like, does Michael Savage have some standing uh, opponent who is encouraging people to go like remove his books from <laughs> yeah uh, from the library? It's interesting. So would not have guessed. Anyway, this. I thought that was. Uh, and, and every year it suggests, and this is 2005, so if this is a loan or, um, I don't know, like Masonic, you know, you know, Mason kind of conspiracy that multiple people over many years are going out of their way. They, they have like an omnifocus task to go steal Michael Savage books off the shelves. <laughs> I'm fascinated by, by this kind of... Uh, it is a weird mystery. It's a very interesting mystery. I don't know what else to say about it, um, except... You now are doing nothing but getting the public library to buy more copies of this dude's book. So I don't know what your agenda is. I wonder if they think that it's being met, whoever's doing this, mm-hmm. by having the library have to buy more and more of these copies. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, there's that. Hero of the Week. And let's go home. All right. Our hero of the week this week is the feminist London bookshop called The Second Shelf. They are donating money to a transgender children's charity called Mermaids every time they sell a book by J.K. Rowling. Mm. They announced this in a tweet on February 12th. Um, They opened in Soho uh, in London in 2018. They only sell books by women, and they are doing this because J.K. Rowling has a pretty established, not great track record um, of transphobic speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, a relatively diplomatic description of that that appears uh, in this piece is gender critical views. Uh, mm. J.K. Rowling hasn't been tweeting really for the last couple of months, but made a surprise return um, to come out in defense of someone named Maya Forstater who lost a legal case in December. Um, and she lost the legal case for tweeting her gender critical views, which JK Rowling believes apparently that she should be allowed to tweet. So mm. um, if likely if you're listening to this show and you lean in the direction that we in Book Riot coverage tend to lean, you are not unfamiliar with JK Rowling's stances on these things. So very cool to see um, not just a bookstore at all do this, which it is, but a bookstore with a particularly feminist inclusive mission. Um, take something like this. It's been really, I think, damaging and painful for like diehard Potterheads to see JK Rowling make these kinds of statements um, and not have the kinds of inclusive values um, apparent doesn't appear to have the kinds of inclusive values that the stories themselves um, seem to convey and that the stories meant to such a wide and diverse community of people mm-hmm. so to acknowledge that and turn it into something good of like you're oh yeah you're buying a jk rowling book but we're also going to donate money um, in support of trans kids i think is really wonderful if you're in london or you want to throw some dollars towards the second shelf we will have a link 
in the show notes for you to do Speak, that. Yeah. So may your efforts succeed, your succeed the second shelf, but may JK Rowling give you fewer reasons to. Yeah. Fix yourself, JK. Um, speaking of buying books online, I am not, I, I'm not prepared to talk about it right now, but I went through the process oh. of trying to buy a book um, from bookshop.org. The new, Oh, okay. I don't even know what to call it. Front end webs. I guess it's just a website um, where you can buy books and support indie bookstores through a variety of conditions. Uh, and it's interesting. Uh, we have we talked about it before it launched, and it launched a couple weeks ago, maybe at the end of January even. And I'm largely off Twitter now, which I'm sure where a lot of the discourse was happening. I have no idea what's going on with it. Um, but I did try. I did want to use it, but I didn't prepare my notes for today. But that's a preview. If you have tried Bookshop.org um, and have a um, experience to relate, we can maybe wrap it up into a little segment in an upcoming show podcast at BookRiot.com. What's coming up next with us is on Wednesday. You're going to get me and Rebecca and Amanda talking about Jurassic Park. Oh, it was the so book much fun! And the movie. And then ne- the week after, we haven't recorded this yet, but we're going to record it on Monday. We're going to do a spring-summer movie ad- a book adaptation preview. So movies that are coming out that are based on books in the spring and summer, and we're going to do a confident in- index. How confident are we that these are going to be good movies? Not necessarily good adaptations. At least I'm scoring them, of course, of, along the lines, are they going to be good movies? Whether or not they're faithful adaptations is somewhat sometimes related and oftentimes not, in my experience. Um, I tend to judge an adaptation of a book on the sort of the standalone merits of the movie. Did I like the movie on its own terms? Mm-hmm. Sometimes difficult to separate, maybe often difficult to separate if it's a book you care about, know, otherwise have a relationship with. But I think there can be a good movie that's based on a book that's pretty different than the book, and that's all right with me. I think you feel the same. I think we've talked about this before. I do, yeah. yes. I feel that way. That I would like a good movie experience to just be a good movie experience. I think you can have a good adaptation that's not necessarily faithful to the book. You can have movies that are better than the book experience. And a lot of these, and I think this is the way of the future, it looks like, or the way of the, the immediate future, um, these seem to be... One trend was that they are kind of spins on them they're not straight none of these really look to me like straight adaptations and i've seen none of them but at t- case in point there's an adaptation of emma that's coming out march 6th that's in this tradition of the kind of uh, i think that i saw someone describe it as like the spiky victorian adaptation the favorite yeah. the emily dickinson uh, even really going back in some ways the proto um the the prototype for this was the 2000 pride and prejudice which is a little bit you know, they had dirty petticoats and they're sitting around lazy and messy rooms and the pigs were out on the troughs, like kind of a cinema verite of Austin, weirdly, or something like that. And Emma, of course, is um, the author of uh, Emma. And it looks like a spikier, more kinetic kind of uh, with an edge in a way that sometimes you don't necessarily see an Austin adaptation. But then there's a David Copperfield adaptation that's a spin and there's a version of Peter Pan focusing on Wendy that's a spin. A lot of spins, um, which especially for these books that are old and maybe don't reflect the best of, to the best of our knowledge, the way to talk and feel and think about different kinds of people and experiences makes a lot of sense. So that might be something we're going to talk about as a through line of how is this taking a, in some cases, moldering familiar tale and making it feel fresh, which to my mind for any adaptation, that's not just of a current book is the single 
most important thing for an adaptation to do is to make it feel like there's a reason I'm watching this right now in this time and place rather than watching one of the other 50 David Copperfield adaptations from like 1911 um, or something else like that. So anyway, um, that's going to come out uh, in a couple weeks. And I don't know why it was important for me. There's no work you can do. These movies aren't out. Um, so I, I guess I was thinking along the Berkner <laughs> Movie Club, like if you wanted to watch and read Jurassic Park, you win some lead time. But none of these, the only book, I guess a couple, Call of the Wild is on the list. It'll be out. Mm. Um, I think that might be, oh, Invisible Man, The Invisible Man starring Elizabeth Moss, which is based loosely on H.G. Wells's um, uh, The Invisible Man is coming out, which, well, I'll save it for that show. Uh, that's it, Rebecca. Enough of me. Enough of this. <laughs> Have a good one. <laughs>